Our family is curious. We've traveled far and wide in search of who, what, when, where, and why. What we've learned, we write about. We are writers. Hello, I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vanderschaff, and I'm a writer and the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus. Welcome to the podcast, Ink in Our Blood, where my father and I explore with you our family's culture, legacy, and experiences as writers. In this first season, we'll take a deeper look at how my dad does it, the way he researches and writes in journalism and his 12 books. And in the final episode, we'll talk about the making of his latest book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. If you haven't read or listened to it yet, you can get it at an independent bookstore, Amazon, or my dad's website, davidmarinus.com. So today, I wanted to look at who you are in terms of where you come from. And literally and literarily, that would be your father, Elliot Marinus. And I think one thing we might talk about today, Dad, is the idea that Grandpa was called a newspaper man, and you followed in his footsteps as a journalist. But what I love is that you and your siblings always talked about your dad as a newspaper man. And that image uh, is of a black and white photo and a man in a trench coat and hat. Not that Grandpa was that all the time. But can you talk about that word and how you relate it to your father? It's an archaic word, Sarah, newspaper man, probably because of the man at the end. Um, And my father certainly did a lot in his career to change that so that it was newspaper people. And he brought a lot of women uh, into the profession. Um, One other slight revision. um, I think that literally and literarily, (laughs) I also got much of it from my mother, who was um, an intellectual and a book editor. Um, But I was sort of the dumb one in my family and followed my dad into newspapers. So in that sense, uh, he probably had a more direct influence on me. Um, I think of a newspaper man or newspaper person um, as someone who uh, has ink in their blood, and that certainly was my dad. His father was a printer on Coney Island. My father loved nothing more than newspapers, um, everything about them. He he knew every angle of a newspaper. He knew how to edit. He was a wonderful uh, headline writer. He was a reporter. Uh, he taught me everything I know about how to search for the truth and for facts. Um, he loved layout. He would go in the back room of the of the shop back in the days when there was hot type at newspapers and actually printing presses. And he knew how to read uh, upside down like the printers so he could tell whether they were getting things right. Um, they were the only people in the world who could actually uh, translate his scrawls and scribbles. He was a... <laughs> a bad writer uh, in that sense, a hard, illegible. Uh, but he, he just, he had every aspect of newspapers. You know, he, he never liked the word journalist or journalism. Um, it seemed sort of a little bit stilted and phony to him, uh, as was media. He was just newspaper through and through, and that's why he was a newspaper man. It's interesting, Dad, you said hot type, and that's a printer's term from the days when each word in the newspaper was set in molten lead and it was hot. So even today we say something is hot off the press. That was part of the process. It wasn't, there was no computers involved. It was actually um, 
word letter by letter that they would set on a page and it would go into the the uh, linotype and then the printing presses and it was hot. It would come off the <laughs> come off a blank a blank page would turn it into the newspaper. So it's literally hot off the press because it felt it had heat. Hot off the press because it was yes and rumbling. Uh, one of the great joys of of my early days in newspapers was. Uh, especially at the Washington Post, we were on the fifth floor and the printing presses were still in the building on the first floor. And when they would start to roll, you could hear the whole sort of this earthquakey type of rumble um, from down below. And that was the, the presses hot printing out the next morning's paper. And then there's the word stereotype, which is also from the printing profession. And that was a mold uh, of an original from which copies could be printed. That's exactly where that word comes from. Yes, from a lot of words come from newspapers, uh, and that's one of, you know, it, it has a, of course a wholly different uh, meaning in terms of something that is uh, predictable and not necessarily correct. And I, of course, like to think of newspapers as being uh, unpredictable, but but factual. Did your dad um, come home smelling like ink then, um, or have ink on his hands? So you could talk about. It ink in the blood, but uh, it sounds like a messy process. <laughs> well, he wasn't, he wasn't a printer, but it was a messy process. And there was nothing, uh, you know, when you think about a newspaper today, uh, it's sort of like an insurance office. You know, everybody has neat desks and uh, you just hear the little quiet click, click, click of a, of a uh, computer. Uh, and uh, in the old days, it was noisy and messy. And so when, you know, when I was a kid, my father was an editor at the Capitol Times in Madison, and the, the newsroom was on the second floor. And I just loved walking up the stairs to that second floor and, and just seeing this total chaos, you know, uh, old, you know, newspaper, uh, cigarette butts on the floor, uh, editors calling out for a copy, putting copy into pneumatic tubes that would go to the back shop, um, you know, uh, pencil, dark pencils, uh, glue pots, um, just everything about it. You know, it, it had it had a smell and an aura that just reeked of of what I loved about newspapers, even though it was completely messy. And I think I can imagine the sound then too, with, with typewriters um, uh, and the clatter of the, the keys. There were teletype machines mm. clacking away, you know, with the wire service machines, uh, reporters. Uh, yes. You know, a lot of them were hunt and peck typists uh, using two fingers, not all of them, but some of, you know, the old school ones were like my dad and uh, the the desks were complete messes, a jumble of papers and note and reporters' notebooks um, and coffee and maybe something a little stronger <laughs> hidden away in a in a side drawer of the desk. Uh, you know, that's sort of a that is a stereotype uh -huh. <laughs> of some old newspaper people, but nonetheless uh, could be true. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was noises, smells, sounds, everything about it was newspaper, and that's gone basically. And I still remember when you would come home with um, uh, carbon paper uh, and some red grease pencils. Uh, do you remember how you would use the carbon paper? Where the paper, where each copy would go? Was there a system for that? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it a system because nothing was, you know, very or, uh, methodological or organized. But what you would do, you'd have two pieces of what was called copy paper, which was very thin, um, sort of a off-white uh, cheap paper, and you would put a carbon between those two, and that would create a duplicate for the second piece. That's where I started in newspapers back in, oh, 1973 and four when I was covering high school sports for the Madison newspaper. By the time I got, and also actually that was going on at the Trenton Times when when I was there in 1975 and 76. By the time I got to the Washington Post in 1977, it had advanced one funny step to what they called six-ply, which was um, six pieces of paper actually already attached with carbons between them. And you would type on that. It had a, sort of a pinkish magenta border um, and then white space in between. And you type on that. You would give the first uh, – you would keep one back copy and give the others to the editors as you turned them in page by page. And then from there, uh, the post went to a very archaic first computer that was actually built by Raytheon. You know, which is mostly known for its defense industry products, but it built an early computer. It was this big old um, contraption, you know, twice as big as as an average uh, desktop PC today, um, and it had a huge back like old TV screens, um, and um, a system that was fairly simple, but not simple for morons like me. Um, but we all learned it, and then you know it progressed over the decades from there. But the first computer that I used was uh, in 1980 at the Post. There was also for when we were on um, on the road, uh, to my first stories on the road, I would actually call into a dictationist at the newspaper. But then they had a contraption. I can't even remember the name of it, but it was it was kind of like a mimeograph machine and that you would put your copy into it, plug it into a phone, and that would send it across the to the post and they would pick it up from there. Like a fax somehow. machine I'm, sort of? Yeah, well, an early ver- – it wasn't a fax machine, but it was an earliest version of that. It, it rolled the copy through like a mimeograph machine. Wow. But, um I don't, I don't even remember the name of it. It was so uh, long ago. But but I would haul – it was fairly heavy, and I'd haul that. I remember covering the 1976 um, presidential election, hauling one of those around with me. Wow. Um, I want to talk more about uh, your early days and what you worked on. Uh, but let can we backtrack a bit to Grandpa? Um, of course. And uh, yes. do you remember uh, – a particular story that he worked on that he talked about at home. For example, I remember when you covered the earthquake in Mexico City. Um, I was pretty young, sixth grade, but I remember that was an important story and that you took some risks to cover it. Were there any big moments um, in the the 60s, perhaps, that you remember um, him talking about and, and writing about? Yes, I do. Um, I remember actually when we first got to Madison in 1957, there was a hideous mass murderer in southwestern Wisconsin named Ed Gein, who um, I don't want to get into all the details, but anyway, he 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 murdered 
a lot of people, uh, not at once, but over the course of a year or so, and hid them in his house. And my dad covered that. And that's that, of course, spooked me for a long time. Um, on a more uh, a lighter, more interesting political note, I remember that he covered the 1960 Democratic primary in Wisconsin. And that was between um, John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey. And I remember my father traveling with Kennedy um, from Milwaukee down to southern Wisconsin, uh, uh, Monroe, Wisconsin, in Greene County. And he came back and said, um, Kennedy's going to win. Humphrey was from Minnesota. He should have been able to relate to to the farmers of Wisconsin. Um, but he said, Jack Kennedy was with his wife, Jackie, and all of the farm women came out because they wanted to see Jackie. And it was such a charismatic thing that, that, that I remember my father talking about that at the dinner table and saying he knew that Kennedy was going to win. He had good instincts, it sounds like. Where do you think he got some of those? Uh, he he was he was born with good instincts. He 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 sort of could judge what was going to happen um, before it was going to happen, and he had a, a fluidity of of mind where he could uh, consider several variables um, and figure out which one was most likely to happen. He was a pretty good poker player. Uh, he played poker on the ship going to Okinawa during World War II. He taught all his kids how to play poker with uh, pennies and nickels. I remember we'd have a big jar and play poker. Um, and he just had that uh, instinctive ability to sort of suss out a situation. I want to ask you about uh, sort of the way the day would unfold for your family with the Capital Times being an afternoon paper. Um, mm -hmm. And I think even just saying that there may be some listeners who uh, may be young enough that they've never experienced an afternoon paper. But can you let's set it up by you talking about sort of the types of papers there were morning, afternoon and, and why it was and what it meant. Uh, for those papers. Sure. Well, uh, you know, it's interesting that the Capital Times, where my father spent much of his career, was an afternoon paper. And there were two papers in Madison. The Wisconsin State Journal was the morning paper, and the Capital Times was the afternoon paper. And when they first um, decided which would be which, the, the publisher of the Capital Times said, I want to be the afternoon paper, which in the retrospect of decades and generations was a bad choice. But at the time, it made total sense because most newspapers in that era were actually evening or afternoon papers. Often they were called evening papers. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, um, it was because the average newspaper reader was a man, generally speaking, who would work a regular shift, maybe eight to four or nine to five, and then come home and read the paper before dinner. Now, that is a stereotype <laughs> to a certain degree, but it's also the way everything was thought about in that era. So, so the afternoon paper was the one that would have that day's events in it. It would have all of the sports scores from the day before. It was a little more thorough. And in that sense, it was advantageous to be the afternoon paper. That changed over many decades as everything became faster and people wanted to read in the morning, um, first thing in the morning, um, 
the previous days and nights news. Um, and there was less time for people to unwind um, after work, work hours changed. Um, and so eventually morning papers became advantageous. But my father worked for an afternoon paper. And that meant he would get up before all of us. Um, he, uh, when we were living in Madison, he would cook his own breakfast, which was a rather pathetic soft-boiled egg with saltine crackers. And then he would usually um, walk to work or take the bus. He didn't. We only had one car when in our childhood, and he didn't take it. Um, he he often walked to work or took the bus. Or at one point, he was in a, a commuted with another uh, guy who just picked him up one day, and they became friends. And then he would take him to work every morning. He would get to the newspaper um, before seven o'clock. Um, the first deadlines for the street edition were somewhere around 10.30 in the morning. Um, the main edition was 12 to 12.30. There was a late edition that would come out about 1.30 or 2. And really by 3 or 3.30, that day's newspaper was put to bed. Um, and it was before the era of 24-hour news cycles where reporters felt obliged. You know, there was no social media. There was uh, there were only three uh, large TV networks. Um, and so when the newspaper was done for the day, that was basically the end of business, with the exception of reporters who were covering evening meetings, such as uh, a city council meeting or or the state legislature, or something else that might be going on into the night, or sports reporters. But the other reporters were all done, as were the editors for that for that day. Um, and so my father would often come home um, by 4 o'clock at the latest. And one of my strongest memories of my dad is he loved water. Um, he loved the ocean. He grew up near the ocean on Coney Island. Uh, Madison, where we lived, had three lakes. And he would often come home, get into his swimming suit and go down to Vilas Park and, and go swimming, um, you know, he, in the summertime. Every day, he just loved that. And so that was his way of unwinding, um, which was not easy for him because he was a, a fairly um, – you know, he was so wired in the newspaper job that it, it, he needed that unwinding, and that's how he did it. Um, so his day started at six, boiled egg, news, you know, uh, editing the paper or writing, depending on what job he had at that point, and coming home around 3.30 or 4. It seems like the um, pace of uh, the newspaper, not just for him, but for families, would really define, in a sense, the um, the pace of the day uh, in a way that right now I look at with nostalgia because things had their place and and then they um, gave space to other things and instead of bleeding into every minute of your at attention or your energy um, it seems like a healthier way <laughs> although I know that you're not well, one to no, mythologize the past but. <laughs> No, I'm not. And there were certainly parts of it that, that were not nearly as enjoyable 
or, or had more difficulties than what's going on today. But just in terms of being a newspaper person, you know, I mean, I'm 70 years old. I, I was a reporter and editor. I have been for, you know, more than 40 years at the Washington Post. Um, but I look at the young reporters at the Post today, like Phil Rucker or Bob Costa or Ashley Parker, and they might start the day on Morning Joe or some TV show, you know, then report all day, write a story, um, post it on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and who knows what else, and then go on shows at night all the way up through the 11th hour with Brian Williams on MSNBC. I mean, that's just exhausting. And I can only, I, I admire these reporters tremendously and they're doing a wonderful job and it's sort of a new golden era of newspapers, but it is so vastly different. And I can only imagine um, that it's going to be exhausting. And I think that many of them, when this particular era of hyper news uh, because of the president in particular um, fades somewhat, if it ever does, then some of these reporters are going to have a version of PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're going to have so much adrenaline, be accustomed to so much adrenaline, that's going to be harder for them to readjust to a, a slower life. That you know, That's what happens with war correspondents. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, the reporters of today are sort of in that constant mode. Um, so that's one difference. Uh, you know, they don't have as much time to unwind in the various ways, good and bad, that journal, that reporters, newspaper people in the old days might, you know, go to a bar at three o'clock. I mean, I remember my dad wasn't a heavy drinker, but all of the, the newspaper people at the Cap Times would, would, would retreat from the paper, you know, when he wasn't going swimming, um, I would go pick him up at uh, the Shamrock Bar, which was about three, uh, you know, a block away from the Capital Times. And that's where they were all hanging out and talking about the day's events and what was going to happen tomorrow, um, among other things. Um, and you don't, you know, there's no opportunity for reporters today to do things like oh. that. Do you think um, that the idea that the the print was literally, you know, set and that it um, – you only get one chance at it. There's no um, edit you can make to the, you know, the online copy. Did that make uh, journalists of your father's generation um, more um, uh, precise or careful? Or was the speed with which they had to create things, uh, did they just feel like, get it out there and we'll forgive a typo? Like, did it have, do you see a, a generational difference in terms of that, that type of precision? Well, there actually were, I mean, that's where the word typo yep. came from, because it was an error in typesetting. Um, and, um, you know, but there were proof sheets that would come up, and you would have a chance to correct the page, especially the front, all the pages. Um, that was true even all the way through um, the uh, hot type at the Washington Post. I remember that, that when I had a big story in the Sunday paper, um, I would hang around uh, the office on Saturday night, and at about nine o'clock, the proof sheets would come up, and you'd re you'd see your story set in type, but not permanently yet, and look for errors in it, and and maybe the headline was wrong or something. So even in the hot type era, you had chances to correct things, um, not in the same way as today, but I think actually there are probably more errors in the paper today than there were then for another reason that you haven't mentioned, Sarah, which is. Copy editors. Mm. 
Um, in the old days, the rim, the desk, the copy editors were a central, vital aspect of the news, newsroom. And of all of the different um, professional parts of a newspaper that have been affected by the changes, both technologically and financially, um, copy desks have suffered probably the most. And there's a feeling that you don't need them as much um, when everything is online. But in fact, uh, and because of the speed that you want to get something onto the line, um, they sort of circumvent copy editors often. And so you find actually more mistakes. Wow. Well, this is a side note that probably won't make the final podcast, but I have to say that the copy editor in the health section at the Post that, that I would work with, I felt like I was defending a dissertation and I respected <laughs> how... Um, how many questions and how he would vet, you know, different statements. And I thought if the average reader understood how much thought goes into one sentence and checking its um, meaning and veracity, um, they might be able to differentiate more about the, the, the veracity of what they're reading. You know, everything looks the same online, quote unquote, but what goes behind it before mm -hmm. it appears is vastly different depending on the source and the. the oh, absolutely. And I, I'm glad you made that point because I'm certainly not trying to uh, denigrate copiators, just exactly. the opposite. Yes. Um, but, um, and you had the advantage of writing for a weekly part mm -hmm. of the newspaper where there was more time for that. What I'm talking about is when there's a story breaking, um, often it will go right through um, and there are fewer copy editors to check on. That makes on. sense. Do you, um, another part of the world, your father was a newspaper man in, um, was the fact, if I'm correct, that they had women's pages in newspapers um, and they might be referred to as such. Uh, how, what was your dad's view of those? What was the Capital Times uh, as a newspaper um, how did it treat um, not only uh, the woman reader, but the women reporters? Yes, they were called women's pages or society pages was the other name for them. And it was a part of every newspaper up into the 1960s. My uh, dad, uh, Elliot, became an editor at the Capital Times in the 60s, and he you know, he had a strong wife who was a, uh, you know, a Phi Beta Kappa at the University of Wisconsin and an intellectual and a book editor. And um, he also had those that, that sensibility anyway. But he was um, very committed to bringing women um, out of the society or women's pages and into the newspaper just like anyone else. And so, you know, many of his proudest uh, – disciples uh, were women reporters. Um, and uh, he was very, very proud of that and very committed to it. Um, you know, he sent, uh, you know, when there were student protests at the University of Wisconsin, um, I remember that uh, the story that Whitney Gould, who was a great woman reporter there, told of, of some of the other um, male reporters wanting to protect her and not letting her go cover them. And Elliot said, you know, Whitney, go down there. Um, he, you know, he was he had a my dad had a fairly brusque um, nature as a city editor, sort of right out of the front page. Um, but his reporters knew that he he cared for them and was on their side. So. 
they would sort of laugh about it. But he would he would snap out orders, and and regardless of whether you were male or female, um, same thing. And he also tried to bring the first African Americans onto the paper um, in a city that didn't have many African Americans, and. And that was a more difficult process, but something that he started at the po- at the uh, Capital Times. Um, along the lines of his brusque personality, there's a story in our family about something he said to your brother Jim. What was the context for that? Could you could you share that? Yeah, it's kind of uh, macabre, but nonetheless a little bit funny at the same time, um, and sad. But my dad. So um, at the Vilas Park Zoo there was an elephant named Winky. And it turns out that Winky wasn't as um, delightful as the name might imply and was a killer. Um, And uh, tragically, in the mid-1960s, a little girl got too close to the elephant cage and Winky picked her up by his trunk and... um, slammed her to the ground and she died. And, you know, it's a horrible story. And um, my brother, Jim, was on uh, summer from Harvard and working as a summer intern at the Capital Times. And when this news broke, my father turned to Jim and said, Jim, go find the parents and interview them. Now, that's a job that every reporter that I know has had to do at some point in his or her career. Talk to some family members of somebody after a tragedy. It's very, very difficult um, and just part of the job. And so my brother, who wasn't a real newspaper guy like my dad was or like I was, um, he said, Dad, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Meaning he couldn't go talk to the parents. And so my father, or <laughs> Elliot Marinus, city editor, said, then you're fired. And don't call me dad. <laughs> because it was in the newsroom. <laughs> so that's sort of my father. <laughs> that is definitely your dad. And that was the end of Jim's uh, journalistic career? Is that? <laughs> no. No, he, he wasn't okay. really fired. Uh, but, he, you know, Jim was... Um, you know, so much smarter than than me, and and he he he's a he became a professor of Spanish. Yeah, literature. He, he, he turned out okay after that. Um, yeah. Wow. Um, did you and your dad ever cover a political convention at the same time? We did. It was a blast. Um, it was. Uh, I mean, you know, we were in the same city for the same convention. And I would meet him at night a few times, I think, and we flew down there and back together. Uh, It was the 1976 Republican Convention in Kansas City. My father and John Patrick Hunter, another editor at the Capital Times, went down to cover it for their paper in Madison. I was then working for the Trenton Times. I was the national uh, political writer for the Trenton Times, which was a farm club of the Washington Post owned by the Post of that era. And I was the only reporter for the for the uh, Trenton Times down there. So I was writing like three or four stories a day. Uh, I barely knew what I was doing. Um, and my dad was writing columns for the Capital Times. So 
it was that was a blast to actually be in the same city covering the same events for him that one time. It's the only time I can remember doing it. And he was the the pro at the time, wasn't he? He was the seasoned uh, journalist, and you were the the upstart, I suppose. Um, very much so. I mean, I was uh, in my second year uh, as a full-time reporter, newspaper guy for the Trenton Times. You know, I thought I knew a lot. I, I didn't know anything. Um, but uh, I, I worked hard and, um, you know, I, I had to write stories about the New Jersey delegation. But I did a lot more than that. I I wrongly predicted that Gerald Ford would pick Howard Baker as his vice presidential running mate. He picked Bob Dole. But I, I was just following the flock at that point. I think some famous uh, uh, well-known journalist, maybe it was David Broder, I don't even remember, had predicted that it would be Baker. So, you know, I was a novice and I wrote a story about how it was going to be Baker. And of course, I was wrong. And, you know, it's those early lessons that I learned about um Trusting my own instincts and not following what other people are saying by getting it wrong at first. And did you, um, uh, do you remember uh, a convention where you felt like you um, got a scoop or there, a, a story that you wrote at a convention that you knew was uh, uniquely special in some way? I know you've covered a lot. Well, I don't know if it was at a convention. There, there are not... Um, that many scoops to be had at a convention. The first scoop that I remember at a convention was not mine, but I was sort of a little bit part of it. But it was at the 1980 Republican convention in Detroit. Um, we had a wonderful uh, political writer named Lou Cannon, who was from California and was totally plugged into Ronald Reagan. And um, this was the convention where Reagan was nominated. And everybody else was saying that Gerald Ford was working on an agreement where he would be sort of almost a co-president with Reagan. It was on the national news. It was in all the newspapers. And Lou Cannon, in our meetings, I was there, um, kept saying, no, it's not going to happen. It's going to be George H.W. Uh, Bush. And Bill, Ben Bradley, our editor, said, I don't know. Everybody else is saying it's uh, Ford. And he said, Lou, if you're right, I'm going to kiss you smack on the lips. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're wrong, well, who knows what would happen. <laughs> so I was assigned to go uh, – I, I had some small role in – following Ford or something. And I, you know, I realized that it wasn't going to be Ford. And, but I, Lou already knew that. And I came back to the uh, post uh, um, little news place in, in the convention and um, the news broke that it was Bush. And you have to know, Lou Cannon had this walrusy <laughs> mustache. He was Funny looking dude. And, you know, there's debonair uh, Boston Brahmin Ben Bradley. And of course, he, he did what he said he would do. He kissed Lou Rice smack on the lips. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Wow. Um, that's great. <laughs> and. Um, but there were times when I did yeah. get scoops. I mean, my first, my first big scoop was actually when I first got to Trenton and mm -hmm. was assigned to cover. Uh, I mean, I got yeah. I was I was in Trenton, assigned to cover Princeton, and one of my assignments was to cover the Princeton School Board. 
And I got to there and realized that something was really fishy about the school board and the superintendent mm -hmm. and found out that the school board had privately fired the superintendent weeks before and it hadn't even been announced and nobody knew about it. So I broke that story as soon as I got there that, you know, the <laughs> superintendent's fired, but the people don't, you know, the, the teachers and the, and the parents don't even wow. know. Um, and then at the, when I got to um, the post, uh, one of my first big political stories um, involved the governor's race in 1978. And uh, everybody thought that the acting governor, Blair Lee, was going to win the election. And there was another candidate, sort of a third or fourth in the running, named Harry Hughes. One of the other candidates described Harry Hughes as a a, a golf ball lost in tall <laughs> grass. And I wrote a story saying, uh, they're cutting that grass, Harry Hughes is going to win. And he did. Um, so that sort of set me up as having that same uh, ability to sort of sus suss things out that my father had. And I've always sort of had that confidence. Not that I've always been right, but but there are certain times when I can tell what's going to happen. Um, and did the same thing with Clinton, actually. Um, in 1991, uh, I was in Austin um, as the Southwest Bureau Chief for The Washington Post and wrote a memo to my editor saying, I think that Bill Clinton's going to be the Democratic nominee. I'd like to spend the next year covering him. And so that's what I did. Um, and he was not only the nominee, but the next president. And I'm not sure if everyone might remember how out of left field that would have sounded at the time, um, as he was a, a governor from Arkansas, um, even though he was a Rhodes Scholar, not everyone is focused on what is happening in Arkansas. And so when you wrote that, did you get any um, uh, resistance or any suggestions that maybe you would be better off covering a different candidate? Or had you already built up enough of a, you know, a reputation for your instinct? Well, uh, first of all, uh, President Bush had like a 80 some percent uh, positive rating at that point. So there was an assumption that he was going to win re-election. Um, among the Democrats, Clinton was pretty far down in the field at that point. Um, but he, I, because I was based in Austin and Arkansas was part of my territory, um, it was natural that I might cover Clinton. So I was given a lot of freedom at first. And in the end, in the middle, there was this uh, – uh, sort of bubble of interest in Ross Perot, who was also from Texas, mm -hmm. where I was uh, based. And he was running as a third-party candidate. And some of the editors tried to take me off Clinton and have me cover Ross Perot, which I thought was a dead end and resisted um, sort of passive-aggressively <laughs> but um, <laughs> by writing one story about him and then moving back to Clinton. Um and so, but that was it. And basically they let me, they, they trusted me more and more. And those stories uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. They did indeed. Um, and uh, I'm wondering when you were covering, and you did this so much, you were always on the road. Um, and sometimes I imagine with one of those old fashioned devices that you talked about or calling in a story. Did you ever have a technical snafu that uh, you had to work around that might have um, 
uh, I'm sure in the time felt like a total disaster where either something didn't work or the phone calls couldn't go through or um, something got lost. Well, my whole life is a technical snafu, so I can think of many instances of that. Um, in, in those early computers, what you would do actually is have a coupler and and unscrew a part of a phone and attach it um, to the attach this thing from the computer to the phone, and that was always you know an iffy proposition. But the you know the one time that I really could not get my story in was something that every foreign correspondent in that era in particular dealt with all the time, but it was the the most notable time for me. Um, I had just arrived in Austin as the Southwest Bureau Chief in 1985, and there was a, a horrendous earthquake in Mexico, and um, they sent me down to cover it. So I flew from um, from Austin to Guadalajara, and rented a car and drove towards the, the Pacific coast, which was where the epicenter of the earthquake was. Um, and everything was out down there. There was no way I could send in the story. So for a few days, I was completely out of touch with with my family and with the Washington Post. Uh, my wife, Linda, tells the story of calling the the uh, post foreign desk and said, I haven't heard from David for a couple of days. And the guy on the other end said, Oh, that's no big deal. You know, we have people go for weeks. Um, so, um, you, you know, you'll hear from him. And of course he was right. And I finally um, got to Playa Azul, this little town where uh, it had been totally destroyed by the earthquake, which also leveled much of Mexico city, which was the, which was quite a ways from the epicenter, but was most heavily damaged. And Playa Azul, again, I couldn't file a story. I'd also been um, to Ciudad Guzman, this small town, and wrote a, a pretty, what I thought was powerful story there about uh, what it was like the moment the earthquake struck, because I interviewed everybody in the city. And the um, like many Mexican towns or many cities around the world, you know, the center of the city was a cathedral and the clock on the top of the cathedral had stopped precisely at the moment the earthquake uh -huh. struck. So I used that image in the story. Anyway, I'd written two or three stories and hadn't been able to file them until I got to Acapulco. Um, not a bad place <laughs> right. to end up. Uh, and um, found a ham radio operator and he, I gave him the stories, and together we called them in, and they finally got to the to the Washington wow. Post. Wow, you know, you have to be a jack of all trades in some ways, in terms of being resourceful um, and finding things. Um, yeah. And actually, I was better at being resourceful than at at, at being resourceful right. with technology. I could find people and things, but the technology I needed others yes. to help me with. Um, and in some ways, I guess it. It sort of brings us full circle because I think your dad, a newspaper man, he was he had to do every part of the paper, and then in a lot of ways, yes. um, as a journalist, you've got to figure out even how to get the story to the paper. Um, and then when you talked about the generation of younger reporters now, or the ones in their prime, like Phil Rucker and um, uh, the others. In a sense, they're doing more than just uh, reporting and writing. They're, they're doing um, many different things to get the story out and to get it told. Um, so what do you think um, 
What are the words now? I mean, do we call them journalists? Are they <laughs> uh, more than that? Or And what is your view of, in a sense, how our um, society now thinks of newspaper people <laughs> or newspaper men or women? Well, I, mean, I guess they are enemies of the people, right? Um, according to the President of the United States, um, who, of course, would not know that in Ibsen's play, the enemy of the people was the hero who was... Uh, who knew what was happening, the poisoning of his town and trying to get the word out and was uh, repressed by the powers that be. So that's what, I mean, you know, whatever the platform, whatever the format, um, the job remains the same and hopefully always will, which is to go out there, try to find the reality of what's happening, the truth of what's happening and convey it to the public. And it, my father tried to do that. I tried to do that. And the wonderful reporters of today are doing the same thing. You've just listened to an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by Metamorphosis.agency with creative direction by Monica Ryan and strategy and technical production by Jeremy Ryan. Music is by the legendary Ben Sidron. I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vanderschaff. Thank you for listening. I made my way to the back nine. They call me the Iron Man. Watching out for the sand traps. Form you. Late in my plan Out on the back